0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Gospel Gal. I am Marissa Namir, Gospel Gal, and today is episode three in a series called That's Catholic, a look at Catholicism, Reformation, belief, and practice. And this conversation includes my good friend and co-host, Joy Dudley. So welcome back, Joyful. What's up? I'm getting ready to go to Synod tomorrow, so I'm excited about that. Fun. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It's been a while since I've been out to St. Pete's in Tallahassee, Florida, so I'm excited about that. But um, just to kind of lead into the episode, last time we rehashed what we mean when we're talking about Catholic, Roman Catholic, the creeds, and the liturgy. The last time we recorded, we were talking about priests, the church offices, a little bit of ecclesiology, and so today we're going to tie that back in, some of the things that the priest or the officers in the church, like pastors, they provide to us. They provide absolution, that's part of our liturgy, and they also provide... The sacraments. So that's where we're going today. The sacraments. There are only two in Protestant and Reformed theology, as opposed to in the Roman Catholic Church that has seven. And what are those two sacraments, Joy?
1: Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Ding
0: ding 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 ding. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Exactly. So. To briefly define what a sacrament is, 1662 Catechism, that is Anglican, it says a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward spiritual grace god gives us the sign as a means by which we can have assurance that we in fact do receive it and this is contrary to what the roman catholic church believes about sacraments Um, the sacraments in the roman catholic church are offered by a sacerdotal priest we talked about priesthood yesterday a little bit so you can review the article or the episode from last time One thing we didn't say is that in the Roman Catholic tradition, there is a hierarchy. When a priest is ordained, he is actually something higher, a higher form of being than a typical layperson. And that is something that they believe happens upon ordination. And this is why they're able to provide the sacraments. One major difference between the Roman view of the sacraments and the Reformation view is that Rome viewed the power of God unto salvation in the sacraments. Reformers found the power of God unto salvation from the word. The reformers thought that the word must be preached at every service and the sacraments can never be received apart from the hearing of the word. The Roman church made the sacrament the main event and effectual by the performance of the priest for the people. But we understand and believe that the preaching of the gospel is the primary means of grace and the power of God and to salvation when it is applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit. I think
1: that's an excellent summary. So basically, the sacraments confirm our faith and the Word creates the faith.
0: Yes, by the working of the Holy Spirit. It's not ex opera, operato, operato as the Roman Catholic Church would believe. That means by the working it is worked. So by virtue of the fact that something is a sacrament, then it is effectual That's what the Roman Catholic Church would believe and teach. So in the article, I have posted a little picture of a book called The Very Pure Word of God by Peter Adam, and it shows you there what the Roman communion would view as sacraments. There are seven of them, as I said before. Some of these things we practice, but we do not view them as sacraments. Very importantly, I will bring this into the conversation today. I didn't talk about it in the article, but one of the sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church is marriage. And unfortunately, some evangelicals are viewing marriage in the same way. They would never say that it is sacramental, but they look at it as if it has sanctifying power, which is consistent with their beliefs about ESS, eternal subordination of the son, and that plays out in the life of the family and the church. This is from Peter Adam 2. It says, Sacraments ordained by Christ are not only badges of the Christian's profession, but rather They can be certain, sure, witnesses, and effectual signs of grace and God's goodwill toward us, by which he doth work invisibly and in us, and doth quicken or bring us back, but also strengthens and confirms faith in him.
1: I like that. The tokens of God's goodwill towards us
0: hmm exactly. So this is not about our pledge to God. It is a pledge of God's love and faithfulness to us.
1: It's about God's pledges to us and Him appealing to our senses that He really does forgive us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness.
0: Yes. Okay. So we do not believe, as the Roman Catholic Church would, that it is by these means of grace or sacraments that we are then infused with grace the roman communion would say basically when you receive these sacraments you receive these by grace but then you maintain your salvation by your own meritorious work the sacraments communicate the truths of the gospel this is our position they communicate the truths of the gospel christ's body is given for you His blood is given for you to those who receive him by faith. Just as the word or the gospel is received by faith, so are the sacraments. John Fonbo, my pastor, always likes to say the sacraments are like neon signs flashing. Good news, good news. So again, that is a distinction. We don't believe that these sacraments infuse us with grace, but that they proclaim God's grace
1: we get God's grace through all of our senses, through our ears with the hearing of the word, through our skin with baptism cuz you know you get wet, <laughs> and then through our mouth with the lord's supper. So I think that's really neat. A few weeks ago we went to a conference where they were talking about the sacraments and He made a comment about how kind and loving God was for him to kind of condescend and get down to our level and show us his love and kindness through things that we could that are tangible to us. So I always think that is pretty cool. That
0: is, that's very cool, John, because the Bible preaching of the gospel and the receiving of the sacraments, baby talk. It's a way that God communicates to us in a very tangible way. And exactly. that that's really interesting what you said about all the senses receiving God's love, his message of love to us. If you think about it, I have a new grandbaby, my first one, and if you know anything about Child development, that's how children learn to bond with their parents is through those senses like touching, smelling, feeling, tasting, all those things. That's how they learn how to trust. It's interesting that this is how we learn how to trust the Lord as well. Let's talk about specific sacraments now. We can talk about the Lord's table, otherwise known as the Lord's Supper. The table, the communion, the Eucharist.
1: I would say that the Reformed tradition, there is a real presence of Christ in the supper, but it is different and not the same as what is meant by the Roman Church and Lutherans. So I like the way Ursinus contrasted our view from the Roman Catholic Church. And this is what he has to say. He said the mass teaches on the other hand that the bread and wine by virtue of the consecration are changed into the body and blood of Christ and that his body and blood in the act of consecration are brought down heaven that they are concealed after a bodily manner under the forms of bread and wine that they are handled by the hands of the minister carried about and eaten and received with the mouth by the communicants these segments of the brain are opposed to the Incarnation, the Ascension, the Intercession, and Return of Christ to Judgment, all of which are important articles of our faith, and also to the nature of sacraments, in which the signs must necessarily remain and not lose their nature, as we have already demonstrated. Basically what Ursinus was describing was something called transubstantiation, which is practiced today in the Roman Catholic Church when the minister consecrates it, and it's supposed to turn into the body and blood of Christ, which obviously we would see as a problem um, because Jesus' body and blood has been sacrificed once and for all on the cross and not being re-sacrificed again. I also like the other quote that Ursinus said about the spiritual presence of Christ in the supper, And this is what he has to say. He says, The Lord's Supper testifies to us according to the articles of our faith that Christ, as to his human nature, is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father and not concealed under the accidents of the bread and wine, but that he exhibits to us in the supper his body and blood to be eaten and drunk by faith and engrafts us into himself by the Holy Ghost that we may abide in him and have him abide in us. As it is said, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. So Ursinus and the Reformed, um, such as Calvin and Thomas Cranmer, make a big point about the fact that Christ is bodily ascended at the right hand of God, interceding for us. We do not partake in Christ's body and blood. By mouth, we, we partake in his body and blood by faith.
0: Yes, amen. And I love a bunch of things. I'm going to have to hit some of the points that our sinus was making that you just read because I think they're really, really important in terms of us understanding what the communion is and also to understand how it happens as much as we can. I will agree with our Lutheran brothers and sisters that it is mysterious how it works, but not mysterious to the point where we have no understanding of what this means that this is Christ's body and blood. I think it's abundantly clear these are signs and seals. They are not actually Christ's body because we're not cannibals. It's important to point out, like you said, um, the first quote from our sign said that this transubstantiation brings Christ down. and our service, when we participate in communion, we say that we lift our hearts up to the Lord. That is, when we celebrate communion, there's somehow which were transported in our heart to heaven, to where Christ is. That's our sacrifice of praise.
1: I really like the way the Heidelberg Catechism, again, spells it out for us. I would like to read both question 76 and 78, where Sinus basically distinguishes our tradition from the Roman Catholic view. And the question... Seventy uh, 76 asks, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? Um, it means to accept with the believing heart, the entire suffering and death of Christ in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life but it means more through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body and so although he is in heaven and we are in on earth we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone and we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body are by one soul so again I think uh, This makes an appeal to our union with Christ by faith. Then Heidelberg Q&A 78 says, Do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? Answer, no. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper, does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of the sacraments. Thank
0: you. That's really good. Transubstantiation brings Christ down, and the purpose of it is to present Christ again as a sacrifice. One thing that distinguishes Anglican and Reformed tradition from Roman is this view of communion. We deny that it is a Mass that resacrifices sacrifices our Lord, and we weekly hear this prayer in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, who of thy tender mercy didst give thy only Son Jesus Christ to suffer death upon a cross for our redemption, who made thereby his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world and did institute in his holy gospel and in his holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until his coming again Hear us, O merciful Father, we most humbly beseech thee, and grant that we, receiving these creatures of bread and wine, according to thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ's holy institution, in remembrance of his death and passion, may be partakers of this most blessed body and blood, and that's from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, added by Thomas Cranmer, the architect of the Book of Common Prayer. What he's saying here. And this prayer is in direct contradiction to the Roman Catholic Mass. This was a bold and clear proclamation of the finality of Christ's one sacrifice for sin as our High Priest. Note the adjectives describing this atoning sacrifice. One, he repeats that twice in this prayer to make it clear we're not re-sacrificing Christ. Christ's sacrifice was once. The adjectives here are one full perfect and sufficient it is this that we receive and celebrate in the eucharistic service week after
1: week can you describe what the word oblation means
0: oblation is a thing presented or offered to god that's just a dictionary definition of the word oblation obviously it's one sacrifice it's something that's offered to god christ's sacrifice
1: So basically, it's that idea that what Christ has done is sufficient and enough, and it does not need to be repeated, indicate that it should be, is um, blasphemy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One, full, perfect, and sufficient. That's how Thomas Cranmer described the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, so let me ask you a question, Joy. Is our view of the sacrament of Holy Communion Romanist? (laughs) No <laughs> thank you.
1: I think both you and I go to a church where it's done every week.
0: Yes and praise God.
1: Will, yes. And I will have to say that I am very grateful that we get the Lord's Supper every week and it's awesome because <laughs> it just reinforces the hearing of the gospel. And now, after because we usually receive it after our sermon, now we can have it confirmed in us through the tasting. It's beautiful.
0: It is absolutely beautiful. One thing that happens sometimes in Anglican churches, where it's more of a old old style architecture of the of the church, the physical church building, you'll go forward to receive the communion, and you receive it in either your open hands, or sometimes in your mouth. Also, one of the services that I attended, I love how pronounced. There's just so much rich symbolism in the things that, that happen. Um, there's like a kneeling bench and the the deacons and the priests would come and serve the people. They come down and literally have to like bend very low to reach you, to hand you the elements of bread and wine. So the symbolism is just amazing to me that it's presenting Christ stooping down to serve you. Oh yes, that, that's the other yes. thing. Yes. That's the other thing that when we go to receive Holy Communion, this is Christ's table. This is not a sacrificial altar. He invites us to his table. This is a feast. And he is, if you will, the Lord of ceremonies. But he becomes the servant of us all. He is serving us his own body and blood. This is not a time for God's people to be terrified. This is not a time for us to dwell on incessant, torturous introspection. Should we examine ourselves before we receive the Lord's table? yes absolutely are we looking within ourselves to see if we have attained perfection absolutely not that's the reason we have Christ and Christ has us so when you examine yourself before the table ask yourself this question do I trust myself or do I trust Christ if it's the latter then with joy, you can receive the sacrament.
1: Yes, it was given precisely, I'm, and I'm quoting what is usually read in our liturgy it was given precisely for our weaknesses and our failures to feed us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ.
0: Yes, and amen. Thank you. We didn't go over those things in the article, so I'm glad that we took the time to talk through that a little bit because that's a common theme that I've heard from people that I've encountered the past several years is that they're so afraid to approach the Lord's table because they've been told or taught, examine yourself in a way that is not consistent with Christian belief. Exactly. Sacraments are ordained of Christ and they're not only badges or tokens of Christian men's professions, but rather they are certain sure witness of effectual signs of grace and God's good will towards us, by the which he doth work invisibly in us, and doth not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. So we do not believe, as the Roman Catholics do, that the sacraments are ex opera operato. They are not just performed automatically as a result of receiving a sacrament by a priest or a pastor, but they are signs and seals of an inward reality that will either occur simultaneously with the sacrament or at some later time. The truth of the sacrament is received by faith the working of the holy spirit not by the sacrament itself does that make sense
1: complete sense marissa
0: so this applies to both sacraments the lord's table or the communion as well as baptism so we'll get into baptism today this is a fun topic I think it's fun. I think it's fun because there was a time at which I would have just said, you know, babies don't need to be baptized because they can wet themselves. <laughs> but now I understand the Reformed position and I take great comfort in it.
1: I've always understood baptism for to be for believers only.
0: What did you think that baptism was at that point?
1: I think, well, I was baptized twice. So the first time I was baptized, I was Catholic I was baptized into the Catholic Church, Um, and then I was probably about 18 or 19 at the time. I didn't really have any understanding of the gospel or the faith in general. I just did it because I thought it was what I was supposed to do. And then the second time I was baptized, I was baptized in more of a charismatic church, but I would think they would hold to believers' baptism, too. So I thought, because I didn't have faith at the time of my Catholic baptism, I should do it again as a way to publicly profess my faith and as accordance with the obedience that God requires for, for people who come to faith too. But it wasn't really anything beyond that. Like I didn't, I didn't see baptism as something that could still affect my Christian life. It was just something that I did to show my obedience to God.
0: Yes. Until probably about eight, Or so years ago, I believed that baptism was simply a profession of faith. And like you said, sign of obedience and submission to the Lord as you identify with him, with his baptism. So I wanted to distinguish between Roman Catholic baptism and the Reformed position on baptism. And I wrote this in the article. It says both Roman and Reformed baptism do share some common features. Both attest to our relationship to God and identification with Christ's burial and resurrection. Both attest to a direct relationship to the church. Both are Trinitarian sacraments. Both are administered with water, pouring, or sprinkling ordinarily. Both are administered to believers and to their children. But where we part ways on the sacrament is how the sacrament becomes efficacious to the recipient. William Perkins States this. The difference is this. They, the Romanists, teach that the very action of the minister dispensing the sacraments, as it is the work done, gives grace immediately, if the party be prepared, as the very washing or sprinkling of water and baptism and the giving of bread in the Lord's Supper, even as the orderly moving of a pen upon the paper by the hand of the writer causes writing. So, well, it
1: kind of sounds like it's ex opera operato basically. exactly by the doing it is done
0: by the doing it is done yes, ex opera operato. so it's kind of like the priest or the person administering the sacrament has some magical power to instantaneously cause that to happen.
1: I would like to ask if you can clarify what it means to be efficacious
0: effectual effectual in other words, what causes what?
1: So I guess in the Roman Catholic view, by just them doing the the baptism, the baby is kind of cleansed from their original sin.
0: Yes. When a person receives the sacraments, there is an infusion of righteousness. That person becomes righteous, and then they are able to do righteous works. So then it is that person's works that cause them to continue in salvation but if they yeah so if they sin there's a big problem Houston you you end up with meritorious work earning salvation so if you sin more than you do good works well what happens to you then you have to go to purgatory to purge all your sins before you can go to heaven it's a big fat convoluted mess it, it's to me it sounds more like karma than it does christianity where we would part ways on this How does it become efficacious? One believes by the working it has worked, right? The Roman Catholic position is that the sacraments are themselves efficacious. We believe that they are signs of an inward reality and they become the reality of the individual having received it when they receive the truth of it by faith. Mm -hmm. What does the Heidelberg Catechism say about baptism, Joy?
1: So the Heidelberg Catechism um, says, how does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? Answer in this way: Christ instituted this outward washing, and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly His blood and Spirit wash away the impurity of my soul. And then, question seventy-four is: Should infants too be baptized? Answer, yes. Infants, as well as adults, belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin, and the Holy Spirit, who works faith, are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism, as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant.
0: Okay, what is the Anglican position on baptism? Um, Okay, so it says, what is the outward visible sign of baptism? The outward visible sign is water, in which the candidates are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what is the inward and spiritual grace given in baptism? The inward and spiritual grace is death to sin and new birth to righteousness through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. I am born a sinner by nature, separated from God. In baptism, through faith, there it is, through faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, I am made a member of Christ's body and adopted as God's child and heir. Why is it appropriate to baptize infants? Because it is a sign of God's promise that they are embraced in the covenant community of Christ's church. Those who in faith and repentance present infants to be baptized vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord with the expectation that they will one day profess full Christian faith of their own.
1: That is very interesting.
0: Why do you think it is interesting?
1: Maybe if this is just more of an opinion of mine, but I think when I came to an understanding of why um, Reformed baptized, infants, it just seems a lot more optimistic. Mm-hmm.
0: They're, <laughs> like, not viper, they're not they're not vipers and diapers. They are yeah. they are children who are given a promise. Let me do let me do this because I think this was really helpful. And when I was coming to an understanding of why we baptize infants and sometimes even whole households. This is a recording from Paramount Church. Just listen to this. Please listen carefully as this is the word of the Lord.
2: Let us hear our Lord's command concerning the sacrament of holy baptism. After Jesus had ridden victorious from the grave, he said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20 In obedience to this command, the church baptizes believers and their children, let us hear the promises of God which are confirmed in baptism. The Lord made this great promise to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout all the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That's Genesis seventeen seven. The Lord's covenant promise to Abraham is echoed throughout redemptive history. Over 400 years later, the Lord made the same promise to Abraham's biological descendants when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Exodus 6-7 In later years, Though Israel was unfaithful to the Mosaic covenant, the Lord renewed his ancient promise through the prophet Jeremiah, promising a new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three to 34 In the fullness of time, God came in Jesus Christ to give pardon and peace, through the blood of the cross the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins matthew 26:28 after jesus had risen from the dead the apostle peter repeats the promise of abraham at the feast of pentecost and proclaimed repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children, and to all that are far off, everyone whom the, Lord, whom the Lord our God calls to him. Acts 28, 38 and 39. In fulfillment of the Lord's promise to Abraham, Paul applies it to believers both Jew and Gentile in the New Covenant Church. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6.16 And finally we hear the consummation of the Lord's promise to Abraham in the closing chapters of Revelation which records John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Then I, John, saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a loud voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of god is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people god himself will be with them and be their god revelations 21 2-3 these are the unfailing promises of our lord to those who are baptized
0: yes and amen hopefully the listeners will understand the flow of what was read there no one is going to understand the reformed position on baptism until they have a good understanding of covenant theology but as you can see these promises Actually, the first promise that's similar to this is made all the way back in Genesis after the fall, that there would be a serpent crusher who would come, Genesis 3.15, where God gives a promise of a Redeemer coming. And then there's a promise to, to Abraham and David, and those promises are carried through and repeated in different ways throughout all the prophets, and then in the Gospels, and then in the Acts, and then in the Epistles. Listen to this again. Hopefully, you'll make this connection. This is not Romanist. Romanists do not have a category called covenant theology, and that's what this is. So, we baptize the babies.
1: Marissa, yeah. how, I guess another question that I have is what role does baptism play in the Christian's day to day life?
0: Actually, one of the nice things that I really enjoy about Anglicanism, and I don't know if you guys do this in your Reformed Church or not, but we have our baptismal font at the entrance to the church. So every time you pass by to go into the church, you can dip your fingers in the waters. Just like we repeatedly will taste the Lord's Supper, we can feel the waters of baptism every time we go into the church. But it reminds us of our baptism. It reminds us that our sins are washed away for Christ's sake. So that's why you might hear Reformed people saying, remember your baptism. When they're encouraging people to remember the gospel, it's saying the same. Remember, right. remember what Christ has done for you.
1: Right. Remember that you are now buried with Christ and risen with Christ to newness of life. So that's very much what it's saying, mm-hmm. what we're saying when we say remember your baptism. But it's like remembering who you are, your identity. Your identity.
0: Yes. Identity is so important in our culture. Well, we have an identity. We've always had an identity as God's people. We know who we are. We just have to be reminded. Constantly. hmm I did want to encourage the listeners and the blog readers to refer to our Scott Clark Again, on blog, he has an article. But it is important in the respect that he is bringing into the conversation the Reformers. If you think that, that the Reformed position on baptism is Roman Catholic, then you need to consider the Reformers. His article is called, Is Infant Baptism a Roman Catholic Holdover? He's basically discussing, you know, these men... Cranmer, Luther, (laughs) Ursinus, if you've read these people, Calvin, they are not cowardly individuals. They, They were threatened life and limb because of the differences of opinion that they were taking against the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic position. So there's no reason why they would have retained something as significant as baptism to a piece of Roman Catholic Church. Think that one through. And then also another good resource is um, John Fainville's most recent sermon called Little Ones to Him Belong. He gives an excellent, excellent, thorough, but concise teaching in one sermon that explains infant baptism. A book to read if you don't understand covenant theology yet from a Reformed perspective is Brown and Keel, Sacred Bond. Sacred Bond by Brown and Keel.
1: Great book. Also, I think if you also want a, another um, good good kind of overview of the Reformed perspective on baptism, uh, Jv Fesco's Water mm-hmm. Word Spirit is really good too.
0: Yes. Thank you for that recommendation.
1: Just a personal story. So when I joined my church, uh, they they asked if you've been baptized. And of course, I told them that I was baptized twice. And um, I just found it very curious that they um, accepted my my first baptism over this, the second one. And so I guess now when I remember my first baptism, even though I didn't have like an understanding of the gospel at the time, I kind of see it as, like, God kind of um, marking me and and making those promises to me even before—I don't know. Is that, does that make sense? Yes. And it's kind is- of like a way that I remember my baptism, because it's like, oh, wow, like, the Lord really did did call me to himself there. Mm-hmm. And now I have my Trinitarian baptism to kind of look back as a sign and seal of that reality.
0: Yes, one of the things that John likes to bring up when he's discussing infant baptism or household baptism, the Apostle Paul, in his discussion about the Jews, he says, to what benefit is it that the Jews had the promises? He says, much in every way. But think about how the Jews received the promises prior to Christ's coming, All the Jews, everyone in their community received these promises, but how did they receive them? They received them by faith just as we receive the promises by faith. So when you're thinking about a child, you might think, well, how does this benefit a child to receive baptism? Well, it benefits you the same way that it would benefit you as if you received it when you were an adult. This is about God's promises to you. They are not about your promises to God. And you have these promises that may be received instantaneously when you receive the sacrament or it may be when you receive them later on when you when the Lord gives you the faith to receive it. It requires faith in order to actually receive and have those promises appropriated to you. A baby doesn't understand the logistics or anything about being a person's child, but they still have a birth certificate. That's how we can view baptism. There are benefits associated with that. So in this episode, you can see, well, the Reformation sacraments are not Roman. Thank you for joining another episode of Gospel Gal. We hope that this episode has been encouraging and informative. We invite you to listen again for more episodes on this important topic where we're showing that our Reformation beliefs and practices are not Romanist. In the meantime, please like, subscribe, and share these episodes with your friends and family. We love knowing that you are enjoying the gospel and sharing it with your friends. So please do that, and we look forward to talking with you again next time. Gospel blessings!